Welcome to Meekum Presents On The Move, brought to you by State Farm. It's the show geared toward keeping you up to speed with the latest auto news, event coverage, and expert industry insight. Now, here are your hosts, Matt Avery and John Craman. Hey, and welcome to another episode of On The Move. In this show, we have a very heavy motorcycle theme. Coming up in segment two, we have an interview with Jack Corpola of Cycle Drag. And then, John, we need to keep the motorcycle discussion going because we need to do a breakdown of Meekum's January auctions, which include the uh, stellar results at the Motorcycle Las Vegas auction. We saw another world record with the sale of the 1908 Harley-Davidson Strap Tank at a whopping 900 and $35,000. And what's interesting is we actually got contacted by the Milwaukee Press, of course, Milwaukee being the birthplace and uh, headquarters of Harley-Davidson. So they they were certainly aware of what's going on and they have to be awful proud that the great Milwaukee brand uh, led the charge. And also another interesting point, Matt, is, is all... 10 of the motorcycles uh, that were the top 10 sellers at the motorcycle auction were pre world war ii indicating that the 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 true vintage antique motorcycle hobby stronger than other total sales 24 million dollars and if you add that to the 234 million dollar record price at mecham kissimmee january another all-time record for mecham ready for this 258 million dollars wow <laughs> what a way to start off the year john and uh, of course there's no slowing down where's meekum auctions off to next yep shout out to our friends at the gone farm and meekum division their big spring classic tractor auctions coming to the traditional location east moline illinois march 24th and 5th uh, they're shooting for 500 tractors now that would include also vintage trucks road art and f- farm relics and of course a television coverage on that event at rfd channel well from there the team heads next to Glendale, Arizona, March 28th through April 1st, with an estimated 2,000 vehicles going to be crossing the block there at the State Farm Stadium. And then next up, John, we head to the Lone Star State. Yep, and then in mid-April, we head over to Houston, to NRG Center. And I just want to make it clear that all three of those auctions that we mentioned, the consignments are... Uh, positions, great positions still available. And with the record start for the new season, this is going to be a great opportunity for those either buying or selling to get involved. Meekum.com, of course, as usual, for lots of information about upcoming events. Yep. And another reason to head over to the website is uh, the latest issue of the Meekum magazine is available now. All kinds of uh, exciting features in there, as well as our columns. Now, John, let's turn our attention to the world of car news. Yeah. As we record this, the Chicago Auto Show is taking place. And as As I usually do, every February, I made the trek to downtown Chicago for the media days. Got to uh, check out all the vehicles on display. And a couple couple standouts I want to definitely cover, including, I know, one of the cars that you were really dialed into, the 2024 Chevrolet Corvette E-Ray. Now, before we get to maybe the most notable aspect of the car, it's it's electric powertrain or hybrid powertrain, I want to talk about the color. Chevrolet chose to have this one on display, the show car in cacti green kind of a kind of a polarizing color do you think that was the best choice for a show car 
Matt, that is a really good question. That cacti green is going to be a production color uh, for the upcoming model year, not just exclusive to the E-Ray. So it'd be fun to see exactly not only what happens with some of these unusual colors, but also, of course, with the very first electrified Corvette. We just want to make it clear that the E-Ray is a conventional LT2 495 horsepower mid-engine V8 with an extra 160 horsepower with a hybrid power in the front. First all-wheel drive Corvette of all time, roughly about the same price as the 670 horsepower Z06, which of course is a pure gas engine, ice engine as we call it, uh, and the fastest accelerating Corvette in history. You ready for this? 2.5 seconds, 0 to 60. And that's primarily due to that added electrification of the hybrid system, not only with the extra power, but the extra bite of the front wheels. Really glad you had a chance to see it in person. I have not yet. I'm a little jealous. <laughs> well, before leaving Chevrolet, I, I did spy a single Camaro SS, uh, but not a lot of fanfare and certainly no kind of major news announcement about what's in store. You and I are, are big fans of the model and obviously very eager to hear what might be on the horizon. Uh, I got to say, John, I'm concerned, you know, 2022, the model year came and went and there was no anniversary edition that would have been very customary. Right. So I'm just worried that they might be phasing Camaro out and uh, obviously we'll have to wait and see. Now, moving on, there was an anniversary being celebrated over at Jeep. They are marking 20 years of the iconic Wrangler Rubicon with a special 20th anniversary package available on both 4xE and 392 variants. They will come with a whole suite of exclusive features along with upgraded components and I gotta say John I was kind of expecting something like this only because of how strong Ford's Bronco has charged out of the gate if Jeep wants to stay on top they're going to have to keep the Wrangler interesting and so I think efforts like this are certainly a step in the right direction I think that's a really good point I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch the battle continued battle of Jeep versus Bronco they are now especially as we kind of wind in hopefully in the near future getting production levels and part shortages and all that that kind of back to normal and look at a real classic sales battle. Jeep kind of been alone in that market for many, many years. Obviously, as we know, the Bronco, a worthy competitor, and it has put a big dent in that marketplace. So uh, it, interesting that you notice that dynamic kind of unfolding there to Chicago Auto Show. Any other comments from that big show? Yeah, a, a couple other things of note over in Dodge. They had two of the last call editions, a King Daytona Charger right next to one of the Black Ghost Challengers, which of course pays direct homage to the uh, 1970 Challenger that is going to be crossing the block this May at Mecham Indy. And then, uh, John, there was no shortage of classic or vintage vehicles with the Claremont Collection. Hmm. Now, that's a large auto museum on the north side of Chicago. They had put together a wonderful display. Two of the standouts included a 1970 Dodge Super B and beautiful Plum Crazy. Uh, that was a new acquisition for them. They just purchased that at Mecham Kissimmee, um, held just a month ago. And then also they had a 1971 Rolls-Royce Corniche that they acquired at Mecham Chicago last year. Now that car, John, has close ties to the city as it was owned by Helen Brock of the Brock Candy Empire. But all in all, a, a great time at the Chicago Auto Show. It's really a, um, a fantastic opportunity to get up close and to kind of get our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the automotive industry, see what's coming out in showrooms, and certainly see what we'll be driving soon. 
Yeah. Hey, good stuff, Matt. You know, interesting point that I ran across in regard to, I don't know, we're calling it a celebration or a last call of the Dodge Hellcat platform. First debuted, of course, in 2015, as we know, and is coming to an end in 2023 at the end of the model year with production, I believe, uh, being set to shut down uh, December of this year. Can you believe it? Approximately 100,000 Hellcat engines have been built and installed uh-huh. in a variety of Stellantis products. And the reason I'm mentioning that is, is that means that for many years, decades, and I'm not exaggerating, there's going to be plenty of Hellcat power plants prowling the streets. No worries. <laughs> well, along those lines of, uh, of driving fun, another big indicator is manual transmissions. That's really becoming more and more something that enthusiasts seek out when they're looking for some excitement behind the wheel. In MotorTrans put together a great list showing every manual transmission car that shoppers can still purchase in 2023. It's a very robust list, a lot of options, a lot of different price points, all with a big focus on fun. So it's good to report, John, that the manual transmissions don't appear for the time being of going away anytime soon. You know, manual transmissions uh, available from the U.S. manufacturers, Asian and Euro manufacturers. In fact, 17 manufacturers and 30 different models. Some of the highlights of that group would include Broncos, Mustangs, Camaros, Challengers, Jeeps, Mazda Miata, Mini Cooper, Nissan Z's, Toyota Supra, Porsche Boxster and Caymans, plus the 911 series, the Subaru BRZ and the companion, the Toyota GR86, uh, Acura Integra Honda Civic, and maybe the most surprising of all, Matt, can you believe it? Two production Cadillac Black Wings still available with manuals, the midsize CT4 with the Turbo V6 and the larger CT5 with the supercharged V8 all with manual transmissions still available. So number one, I don't want to hear from anybody out there that they don't make manual transmissions anymore. And number two, take advantage of the availability. If you always wanted one, now is the time to buy. Mecham Auctions is proud to bring you On The Move with Matt Avery and John Craman. For more on the world of collector cars, head over to Mecham.com. Now let's get back to the show. Joining me now on the phone is Jack Corpola of Cycle Drag. This is a site known for their finger on the pulse of the most powerful motorcycles in the world. Jack, welcome to On The Move, man. And I got to tell you, I connected with you for the first time at Mecham's recent Las Vegas auction and seeing your passion in uh, person and your knowledge of the motorcycles. I said, man, I've got to get this guy on the podcast, so I'm glad we're able to make this happen. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it and greatly admire what you're doing. And, and heck, uh, this is just a continuation of the great conversation we had over one of the best stakes I ever had. So thank you, <laughs> Mr. John Craman. We all got to sit around about six motorcycle enthusiasts and talk bikes in January and eat a steak. So that's right up my alley. <laughs> all right. So uh, before we dive into the world of cycle drag, let's back up a little bit and let's talk just about your background and your overall interest in motorcycles. Where'd you get your start? Thanks so much. I mean, my start in terms of loving motorcycles comes solely from my father. My, fa- my story goes, uh, I was born and my dad was a biker. He was a hippie biker and he drove a 76 KZ 900 right up to the front door of the hospital to come see me for the first time. So he claims ever since then I had the bug. And then that led to him taking me to my first drag race when I was like four years old and just absolutely fell in love with it. And then I would say all the great friends that I had growing up introduced me to different sections of the sport that 
as soon as we hit about sixth grade, everybody wanted a dirt bike and we couldn't afford dirt bikes. But one kid in the neighborhood had a Honda 50 and would let us ride it. And then my stepfather was into it as well. So it seemed like everywhere I went, I was exposed to some different form of motorcycles. And what I realized, too, is just you, you meet the best people around it. I don't know if it's because we're all in such a good mood and we're all so passionate, but even just meeting you and John accentuates that, that uh, I just think you meet the greatest people around motorcycles. Now, where did the cycle drag development come from? When did you officially launch? I went to the University of Florida in 2001, which was a big move for me because I was a Pittsburgh kid who had never really been out of state, but my parents took me on one vacation, and once I saw the sunshine in January, I said, yeah, yeah, this is it for me, <laughs> which is why I'm sitting in Clearwater, Florida right now. But anyhow, I went to the University of Florida, knew that I wanted to pursue a career in journalism, and the major motorcycle drag racing series was stopping by. So I volunteered to announce at Gainesville Raceway and the promoter, I'll never forget the email. He said, you know, it's a fast paced world. Timing's everything. Normally I would say no, but just as you emailed me this, my number two announcer canceled on me. If you can come out for free, we can have you. So that really started my announcing career, which then, you know, you get with some of the savvy announcers and they say, Hey, uh, when you go home, if you can write a few articles, you can make some more money. So that led to journalism, I was mainly just a freelancer, a stringer for a long time. And then when I got out of college and was pretty inspired by the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, where one of the lessons is figure out what you can do and start your own business. I decided to start my own publication and it was just as bare bones and as scaled down as it could possibly be. I, I would go to Kinko's and print a thousand flyers and take them to the races and and pass them out and hope that 50 people looked at my site. And that was in 2006. So with digital media and everything else that's happened, we have come a long way. So cycledrag.com is your flagship URL. That's your hub for all the news content you're producing. And then from there, you expand out and you're on all the major social platforms. And you also do a ton of video content, Jack, both uh, behind the camera and in front of the camera. You are very proficient in communicating what makes these motorcycles so significant. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, that has been a godsend. I've always been a, a TV guy, and I think that we live in such a unique time. It can be a scary time. It can be an intimidating time. But looking back and realizing I'm the kid that sent VHS tapes out to 30 news stations across the country hoping to get a job and relying on 30 gatekeepers to maybe respond to your email – that's where we were in the year 2005. Now we're in this just incredible era where anybody, anybody can make it. We can do our own podcasts. We can put our own videos out. And the great measuring stick is, is can you build an audience? So it took me a long time to get there. And certainly it's still trial and error, but that is my bread and butter. I love the digital media aspect of this sport between Facebook and YouTube. Those are my two busiest platforms i did have to go on tiktok i thought i was too old for tiktok but i gave it i gave it a shot okay and uh you just you know as we we constantly evolve and, and sure. who knows who knows what's next right we, we hear the metaverse is right around the corner so who knows <laughs> and it, it seems like uh jack throughout the uh the growth that you've experienced with this that you've really kept that mission to be focused on spotlighting the most powerful bikes that are out there uh it, it seems like you really stay true to that you certainly cover some of the vintage and restoration aspects but you really keep that focus on going fast 
I do. I do. I have an affinity for that. I think it's super cool. I'm very close with Larry Spider-Man McBride. He's the world's fastest motorcycle drag racer. Anybody who has never seen him go down the racetrack will have to check it out on my Cycle Drag YouTube channel. But that being said, along the same lines that you believe in as a great journalist, that John Craman is so good at, I also believe that even more important than power and speed is the story. And sometimes you can find such a compelling story behind a Honda shadow collecting dust in a guy's garage. And those are the kind of stories that, that I've been able to tell that I, I really, really enjoy. Now, uh, Jack, I'm, I'm curious when it comes to, to output of these bikes, I, just give us some insight in terms of the most powerful bikes that are out there. Where do they stand in terms of horsepower in, in quarter mile times? Larry Spider-Man McBride is at the top of the heap. He's been 550, that's 5.50 seconds from a stop in a quarter mile at 268 miles an hour. The bikes approached 1,000 horsepower a while back. They are now at 1,700 horsepower. So they're based off of a Suzuki GS four-cylinder bike. They have billet cases, run on nitromethane, supercharged, and they are just wild. There is, there is nothing like it. I think that's what really helped me fall in love with drag racing. I love all different motorcycles, stock motorcycles, but like I said, we, uh, we have, you have got to hear a top fuel bike. And I'm glad you brought this up, Matt, because I know, uh, you're, you're local to the Chicago area that Larry McBride will actually be at the NHRA Chicago race in Juliet this year. And we plan on going up there. So, uh, you and all your Macomb followers are welcome to come on out and join us. Now, when it comes to travels, Jack, how far and wide are you going to produce content for Cycle Drag? <laughs> That's a great question because I was just on with some of the NHRA boys yesterday, some of the older announcers and that trying to get life advice saying, guys, when do I settle down? When do I have a family? <laughs> when do I have kids? So it's just, it's uh, 201,000 miles in the air last year. And I had the pleasure of working for WWE early in my career. And that's what kind of inspired me that some of these wrestlers out there, man, they'll wrestle in Australia and then they'll be back in California the next day. And it's just nonstop. So I certainly don't run that type of schedule, but I do believe in, you know, jumping on that airplane, getting to Vegas when there's a big event there. And I've been, my most watched YouTube video comes from England. There's a rocket-powered motorcycle over there that's just crazy. And I've also been to Australia. And I'd like to, uh, hopefully, now that now that the pandemic is over with, I'd really like to go to some other places and see what motorcycle culture is like elsewhere. I have a big following, believe it or not, in Thailand. Because I don't know if you've ever seen what they do out there, but they take, like, these the small-bore two-strokes, and, and they'll set up pop-up drag races anywhere. And it's... It's just amazing. So I'd like to go check that out someday if I could. Shifting to uh, to more of the industry, Jack, what's on the horizon for going fast on two wheels in terms of uh, new technologies or, or new powertrains? The absolute cutting edge that I, I'm so inside here following this sport may actually surprise you. I guess the, the easy answer would be the pro street bikes. That's where a lot of the money and technology has gone, and they are modeled after Hayabusa's GSXR 1000, ZX14s, turbocharged all out with a street tire. Now, here's the thing I can tell you about motorcycle drag racing in general, though, that I don't tell a lot of people. I have, I am watching another shift right now, just like I talked about how digital media is making a shift. Back in the 80s and 90s, it was teams like Larry McBride, these, these you know, well-funded, expensive, just 
juggernauts of teams. Then it switched to the no bar stuff, the high boost, the ZX14. What I'm seeing now with these kids, because you know, drag racing is unfortunately aging a bit. I just covered an event where there's nitrous scooters and ATVs, and <laughs> oh, I go man. to the Carolinas. You're never going to believe it. They're drag racing Coleman mini bikes. Okay, okay, just and, and not just kids. It's grown men, and I and it comes back to the same reason. I ask these guys why. And they say, if we blow up an engine, we go to Harbor Freight for a hundred bucks and buy a new one. So I really think that the new generation, they say the Gen Zers and the millennials are going to look to do things in a a less expensive way. And that's, that's what I'm seeing right now. They still want to be involved. They just don't want to quite be involved at the crazy budget level. Some of these guys of yesteryear. What about when it comes to uh, stuff in showrooms? Are are you keeping up with what the, the manufacturers are currently offering? I try to, to the best of my ability, and I'm, I'm very intrigued that down here in Clearwater, Florida, there's a Harley dealer that I'm friends with. It's only about five miles away. In fact, if you ever come down, I'd be happy to show you. It's, it's neat. It's like a motorcycle complex. Paul Tuttle from Orange County Choppers uh, bought into a bar right next to it, so he's got about six or seven of his bikes on display. But because of the relationship I have with the Harley dealer, I get to go out and, and get a sneak peek at the latest models and I think uh, I like the direction that Harley's going. It's 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 funny when you talk about trends in the industry. Who who would have thought that the bagger would be the hottest bike going right now? But it is, and it's not showing any signs of slowing down. In fact, when I go to Daytona Bike Week and stand on Main Street, I'd say, whew, eighty percent of the bikes are baggers. And where the chopper the chopper craze that we watched in two thousand that's kind of subsided a little bit few of the guys will bring them back for nostalgia, but everybody wants a bagger. And, and I can understand why it's just such a comfortable motorcycle that you can, you can throw a tent in, you can throw everything you need and you can go on a camping trip. You can bring your, your significant other. And I think because of that, it's, it's really helped uh, Harley go to the next level. Let's turn our attention to uh, Mecham's Las Vegas auction because that's where we connected, and I'm I'm definitely curious in getting your thoughts on some of what we saw take place. But I want to start the conversation with a piece of content that you produced, Jack. We've talked about how you're you're out there, you're doing video content, and one of your videos that you put together from the auction rang the bell. It really went far and wide. It went up to what three million views. Yeah, three million views. I haven't checked it lately. It's still on Cycle Drag Facebook, but yeah, it definitely. I mean, that means a lot to me. I'm so happy. And then, when, you know, anytime I go to an event like that, I also feel a responsibility that I, I want. I know that Mecham is such a huge household name, but I also feel that responsibility that you know I want to do my part and and help this great event try to reach a large part of my audience. Sure. Well, well, fill us in. I, I uh, you can't leave us hanging. What was the, what did you cover that that went so viral? Well, just as we were talking about moments ago, I think it all comes back to a good story. And this gentleman I have a relationship with, his name's Mike Conipaki from Canada. In fact, he's one of the greatest motorcycle drag racers of all time. He won everything in the 90s, has since retired. And I saw him just hanging out at the show last year, and he didn't bring any bikes. But he was I could see the wheels turning because he's got a collection of about 60 vintage Kawasaki's. So Mike told me this year he's bringing six bikes down from Canada, and he is a master restorer. His collection was amazing. So on day one, the uh, his Z1R rolls across, and I think it gets about 14000 which which is okay, not great, though. 
then his 76 KZ900, which, by the way, is the same green KZ900 that my dad had, so I should have bought it, <laughs> rolls across, and it goes for like 10.5. And again, those are prices where you would list those bikes on Facebook Marketplace. And I'm like, man, I, I, I better be prepared with a bidder's uh, ID next year if, if media is allowed to do that. So Mike was a little disappointed because that's, that's not – uh, what I would say, uh, you know, he, they weren't stolen from him or anything like that, but it just, you know, with all the pomp and circumstance of make them, you hope to do a little better. So the crown jewel comes up 73 Z one 900. And he's telling me, man, I really hope I get at least 25 for this bike. Well, this thing's so beautiful. And as John Craman said in my video, it might be the nicest one in the world. Some were saying over restored, but it just looked like jewelry. It looked like candy. And that's what everybody wants. Uh, it gets up there and it just skyrockets. I mean, it hits 30 and I'm like, all right, Mike. Then it hits 35 and I'm like, whoa. Then it hits 40 and I'm in disbelief because I'm thinking this has got to be a record for, for a Z1. And all it takes is a couple whales competing against each other and they wanted this bike badly. And it ran all the way up to $50,000 and it was just amazing. So I think my audience is the Z1 900 is probably one of the most important bikes in motorcycle drag racing history. Almost all of my audience is familiar with it, has had one. So they were very, very interested in that. And it was great to see, you know, Mike, after having a tough day one, making that, that trip from Canada pay off. Yeah. Well, well done on the video, man. And I know that uh, it wasn't just that piece of content. I know you, uh, you were busy throughout every day of the auction, uh, really pounding the pavement, putting together content and, and, and spotlights from different bikes. And I know another one, too, that got a lot of attention, and rightfully so, was the high seller of the entire auction. Uh, it was a 1908 Harley-Davidson strap tank. It sold for just under a million dollars, $935,000. Jack, from your perspective, any surprises here that this was the one that caught everyone's attention? Well, just a flawless, amazing motorcycle piece of history. And I guess, yeah, it always surprises me that people have that much disposable income to spend on two <laughs> wheels. I don't knock it, man. If you got it, you got it. But, you know, here I am uh, focused on maybe buying a house or something. And, and these guys got a $935,000 motorcycle. But it just shows you there's not a lot of those bikes left. And uh, it, it's impressive. And some of these guys that have worked hard, that are CEOs of companies or have big budgets elsewhere they were they're going to get the bikes that they wanted they're going to get the desirable ones and i think that's what i saw at the auction this year more than ever because i was i wish i could find the gentleman who on day one was was on facebook he said the motorcycle vintage market just crashed and i'm like pump the brake on that one man let's let's get through a couple of days before this and i think what that strap tank bike proved is that for the right bikes, the market is still going up awfully fast. Buyers might be a little bit more selective than they were where Conopaki's not getting 16, 17 for his KZ 900, but the strap tank, just, just amazing. And I think, you know, the coolest part of that, you could probably give me some insight that I don't know Frank and Dana make them very well. I respect the heck out of what they've done, but I was watching them and they, Frank himself and Dana, they were smiling ear to ear and they were so excited over over that bike and it, it was just really cool to see that you know when you consider all the the just incredible cars that they've seen and how high some of these things go at the car auction for them to get that excited over a motorcycle i thought was really cool right yeah i agree um what about other trends or uh takeaways from the auction yeah i 
see, I'm a bit perplexed at, as a drag racing guy, I'm a bit perplexed at the Suzuki GS because for some reason I feel like it's not collectible really that much at all compared to the, the Z1. Don't know if that's going to change. Don't know if that's because they were overproduced. And then what I'm seeing is, bam, here comes the 90 sport bike. So it's almost like we skipped over the GS, but now some of these 1990 sport bikes are just absolutely on fire. So I, I think it really comes down to what's left out there and what people had or what people wanted 25, 30 years ago that they couldn't afford or, or what they sold that they regret. Also, the other trend that I've noticed, and I'll tell you, this has changed since the first time that I started covering Mecham, is I'm seeing more and more dirt bikes. You used to get a handful of dirt bikes and really like, you know, old, old, old throwback enduro bikes. Now, now we're seeing like, you know, 90s dirt bikes that are restored perfectly to stock, even Heck, I think the newest bike, I, I saw a 2003 KX250 there, and I'm like, well, it's collectible already, <laughs> and it's, it's coming, it, <laughs> and I think that maybe maybe that's, maybe that's going to be something that emerges, because think about how many of those bikes that were just destroyed, that, you know, you, you took them out in the woods and beat the heck out of them, where a lot of people can keep a street bike intact and looking like it is, most of these dirt bikes are, are twisted around trees or, or left on jumps and have a bunch of aftermarket parts on them. So, you know, I think the, that's the next big thing is taking these dirt bikes back to stock form. All right. So let me ask you this. If budget is not a, is not a restraint, what's one of your dream bikes that you'd like to add to your collection? Mm, I got a, I got a few of them, but I also have a huge fear of becoming my client. I don't ever want to be one of these guys with 60 motorcycles. Cause I just, I'm, I'm a bit of a minimalist. I've already got four, and I'm thinking, all right, I could, I see how this happened because you want more, 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 more. And I, I just am big on, I want to make sure the bikes that I have, I use and I, I ride. Uh, that being said, would love a 72 Kawasaki H2750 two-stroke Widowmaker. Would love the 73Z1. Would love an original 99 Hayabusa. I you know, maybe, maybe because of what I just said too, I better, uh, scoop it up. I always loved the, the mid eighties GS 1150 E's probably because the same reason why other collectors have an affinity to bikes. It's what I saw as a kid. So I'd love to scoop one of those up. Would love to have some of the old dirt bikes that I had. Uh, and now of course I'm giving you all modern bikes and, and, and that's an interesting thing too, because it was like, I was telling yourself and John Crane at dinner is, I have so much respect for these board track racers and these older bikes, but I've got to be honest with you, beyond respecting the history, it, it's hard to get it to resonate. That Even that 1909 Harley, I can look at it and appreciate it like you would in an art gallery. I can't say I'd ever want to own that bike unless, of course, it was given to me, and then I'd have to figure out what to do with a million-dollar motorcycle. But I really think that what this industry is all about is nostalgia and, and what you had as a kid or what you wanted. All right, Jack. Well, uh, let me ask you, where are you off to next, man? I know you keep a busy schedule. You mentioned the event in Joliet. What are other big motorcycle gatherings that you'll be covering in the coming weeks and months? I have a full, full year coming up. So it's funny that you have uh, talked to me at this time because I, I love when you saw me filming so much stuff at Mecham, as we say in the biz, I have so much in the can. I have so <laughs> much recorded stuff that I've told myself this month, I'm just going to, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to come off the road and I'm going to get a lot of the content out because I there's just so many stories that 
I didn't have time to touch. And I'm sure you can relate to this as a fellow journalist that you want the newsman and you want to get stuff out ASAP. But then also sometimes you come to an awesome event like Nikum and you want to take every second that you can getting content before those doors close. So because of that, I ended up with so much stuff that is yet to be seen that I'm going to put on Cycle Drag YouTube. I'm going to put on Cycle Drag Facebook and Cycle Drag TikTok and even got to spend a little bit of time with John Craman, and that's always fun. We went through his top five of the show. So you're going to be able to see John's top five motorcycles. And it's not like top five most expensive or top five most valuable. It's just his top five personal picks. Very cool. Well, listeners, if you want to catch that content, you can find it at cycledrag.com. Jack, it's been a pleasure to uh, to hear firsthand your knowledge and passion for the world of going fast on two wheels. And uh, I certainly look forward to connecting again soon. And it sounds like that's going to be at another Mecham motorcycle auction. Thanks, man. I will never miss that uh, that auction. If I have anything to say about it, I tell all my friends, what else are you going to do in January? It's that much fun when there's snow on the ground everywhere. Go out to South Point, see 2,000 of the most amazing motorcycles, and enjoy the Meekum Entertainment. So thank you very much for having me on, and you keep up the good work as well. You are a tremendous asset to Meekum, and everything you're putting out on digital is, is great. So I wish you guys all the best of luck, and if there's anything I can do to help, I'm always willing. You've been listening to Meekum Presents On The Move, brought to you by State Farm. For more information, visit Meekum.com. And join us again next time as we take you inside the world of muscle and collector cars and more.